0: This is part one in a two part series. This episode contains discussion of crime scenes and autopsy. Listener discretion is advised. This is the Fall Line. This two-part series on the Twiggs County John Doe case will be a little different. In part one, we'll tell you the story of the case, this man found in middle Georgia by chance, what we know, what's been discovered, and what information has been revised through the years. And in part two, leading forensic experts will weigh in on the techniques that are now in motion and those that could potentially be used to identify him. And so, we start on Highway 16 on the way to Macon, a route in the middle of the state. It was 2003, and like most years, early summer heat was already baking everything. Asphalt, metal, rubber. Macon is called the heart of Georgia, with highways and routes and interstates running toward it. Maybe all roads lead to Atlanta, but most freight takes a run through the middle of the state, And that day, June 14th, 2003, a truck carrying, quote, nearly 2,000 gallons of diesel fuel was headed from Fort Stewart to Macon. Per the Macon Telegraph, it was almost 100 degrees that afternoon. Heat would have shimmered across the concrete that day and across the military convoy following that diesel truck. Such a procession wasn't an unusual sight, not on a Georgia highway, there are 13 bases in the state. But that's where the normalcy of the day ended because that fuel truck veered off the highway. According to later Georgia Bureau of Investigation reports, there'd been a crash with another car on the highway. And around mile marker 14, the fuel truck veered off the road and rolled down the shoulder of I-16, damaging its carrier tank diesel fuel began to pour out into the brush and down a hill headed toward a small creek. First, the volunteer firefighters arrived. They would be the ones to call in the sheriff and the sheriff would need the help of the GBI. But no one knew that when the first fireman crawled down the hill to assess the damage of the wreck. The driver of the truck was unharmed, so the firefighters' attention was concentrated on environmental concerns. He jumped down the shoulder and headed toward the accident. Soon, he realized they'd need to dig trenches on either side of the truck. That would contain some of the diesel that was heading toward the creek. The air already stank of fuel. Per the GBI reports, the fireman knew he'd need to assess the possible environmental impact of such a spill beyond just the crash site itself. So after that initial work was done, He headed out farther into the brush to see how far the diesel fuel might have traveled. This next bit is directly from the GBI's report. We've just omitted the volunteer's name for privacy. Quote, As the firefighter walked toward the creek that was in the immediate threat of the spill, he observed an off-white color object in the pine straw. He initially thought that it was a sun-faded child's ball. He pulled back the pine straw and discovered what he believed to be a human skull." End quote. And another report describes the scene more specifically. Quote, The skull was located in a concrete drainage ditch that ran from the westbound ditch of the interstate into the woods. It was partially concealed by pine straw and other debris that cluttered the drainage ditch. Further examination of the area surrounding the skull revealed additional skeletal remains clothing, a metal pipe, and a large plastic bag, end quote. An agent noted that, quote, no evidence of a burial site was discovered. All items were confined to or in close proximity to the concrete drainage ditch that ran into the wooded area from the westbound ditch of the interstate, and that, quote, the concrete ditch was covered with silt and debris that had accumulated over time. This agent described the terrain as overgrown, and he wrote that, quote, without probing into the ground, one would not have immediately recognized a concrete ditch was present. The volunteer fireman called in the Twiggs County Sheriff, who in turn called for assistance from the GBI's Region 13 office in Perry. Longtime listeners will be familiar with this branch. They're the same investigators who've been working Shakimia Pate's case along with the Dooley County Sheriff since 1998. This time though, they were deployed on a death investigation and several special agents made their way to the scene. One of those GBI agents was Lee Weathersby. At the time, he was there to assist. In 2005, he'd take over the case and he's still assigned today, nearly 19 years after the Twiggs County John Doe was discovered. WGXA News reported that the Twiggs County Sheriff's Office formally handed the death investigation over to the GBI. The GBI immediately made a call to Dr. Frederick Snow. In the early 2000s, the GBI had a full-time forensic anthropologist on staff. That's not necessarily a common situation and isn't true for them today. But back then, Dr. Frederick Snow worked out of the main offices in Atlanta, and he traveled all over the state. According to the Athens banner, Dr. Snow came to work for the GBI after spending time in Kosovo, where he helped identify victims buried in mass graves. That's work he told us about when we first spoke to him several years ago. We contacted him because he'd been a consulting anthropologist on the Dennis Doe case, which we covered in season four, a child decedent found in a DeKalb County, Georgia cemetery. Isotopic testing would later prove that Dennis, whose cause of death was unclear, though he did have cold medicine in his system, had lived in the South Georgia or North Florida region. Dr. Snow was still fairly new to the GBI when he was called out to the diesel spill to examine the human remains. Per the case file, Dr. Snow had agents photograph the scene and lay out a search grid before he arrived. By the time he made it down from Atlanta, a drive that takes just about two hours. The scene was full of people from different departments and offices because they didn't just have a death investigation on their hands. There was also a crash and an environmental emergency and it was growing dark. There was just enough time to make sure the scene was gridded and that a tarp was erected over the remains to protect them from the elements. Per the case file, A guard was set to secure the area until the grid search could be performed. Daylight made that search easier, but the diesel fuel remained a major impediment. Special Agent Weathersby, who remembers working the scene with Dr. Snow and the other agents, told us the fumes were incredibly overpowering. People got sick, vomiting, feeling dizzy, and even with the ditches dug deep to keep the fuel out of the creek, plenty of it had ended up in the concrete ravine. It seeped into everything, silt, debris from the highway, the searchers' clothes and skin, and as noted in the case file, the decedent's remains were also soaked. Dr. Snow's grid system was detailed and specific and the search was thorough. Once complete, searchers had recovered a number of additional skeletal remains. Those included teeth, ribs, vertebrae, and a number of small bones that had been scattered from the main scene. And at least two piles of animal bones had been mixed in with the decedent's remains and had to be separated at the scene. As layers of pine straw and silt were removed, it became apparent that the decedent had been dressed at the time of death, or at least at the time their body was placed in the ravine. It seems unlikely that a person would end up there accidentally and there were no obvious signs of an incident like a fall or a crash that had escaped the notice of the highway patrol. All in all, the search took two days. As Snow and his team progressed through the woods and along the concrete ditch, they found other things. Small bones of the hands, the feet, the spine, teeth, and then larger bones, including a femur. A Lugs brand sneaker, a men's size 8, was recovered near the creek. The evidence was recorded and bagged, and investigators found they had a near-complete skeleton. Everything was sent back to headquarters in Atlanta for forensic examination. In any Doe case, any Doe case that is thoroughly pursued, this is where the investigation forks. One path follows the decedent, the study of their remains to determine possible ancestry, possible sex, age, approximate build, cause of death, approximate date of death. And the information that could be gleaned from the remaining clothes items would be passed on to agents. As for the agents, they'd be following that second fork of the path, missing persons who might possibly fit the profile of the person who would eventually come to be known as the Twiggs County John Doe. According to a Macon Telegraph article published just days after the crash, quote, preliminary investigations indicated the body was that of a white male, older than 35, who'd been dead about two years. That quote came from Assistant Special Agent in Charge, or ASAC McDaniel, who was the second in command at the Region 13 office. Per the Telegraph, he stressed this information was very preliminary, and a full exam would need to be conducted before the profile was more concretely established. Still, when the article ran, it naturally brought in calls and tips, largely from people whose loved ones were missing. Agents also began to check with neighboring counties for any missing persons reports. A few possibilities were immediately ruled out, based on the condition of the decedent's teeth. Dr. Snow had observed that they were in excellent condition. The few fillings that the Twiggs County John Doe had were made of an expensive ceramic composite, and he had no dental abnormalities. We don't have Dr. Snow's field examination report, but... It's likely he did a quick age estimation based on whether certain bones, like the cranial sutures, had fully fused, and then looked for degeneration in other areas to calculate his guess. As for ancestry, which non-anthropologists normally think of as race, Snow may have made a guess based on a rough estimation of skull features. He would, however, have done more precise measurements during his examination and used 4 to analyze those results. 4 is computer software that allows anthropologists to compare the measurements of various parts of a skull to a large database. That database helps create smaller data sets for various groups of known individuals, creating ranges for ancestry groups, biological sex, and other categories that might be used to identify a decedent. 4 is certainly not perfect, but it's a more complete comparison tool than what used to exist, a system based off a few small museum collections that didn't reflect the general population. Back at the Atlanta main office, Dr. Snow's examination began. The Twiggs County John Doe's case was entered into NCIC, or the National Crime Information Center. It seems that Dr. Snow's findings were consistent with much of what he'd observed on the ground at the accident scene. After he was finished, the GBI Region 13 office had the following information. The decedent was male, aged 30 to 50. Cause of death unknown. Likely time between discovery and death, roughly two years. At least one document mentions a potential height of roughly five foot eight. It also seems that, at this point, the racial descriptions of the Twiggs County John Doe expanded to include a range of possibilities. Quote, white, Asian, and Hispanic. Marla Lawson, the first forensic artist ever employed by the GBI, was still on the job in 2003. It would be a few more years until her daughter, Kelly, took over her work. She constructed a clay model approximation of what the Twiggs County John Doe might've looked like in life. It was one of two she'd eventually make in this case. The first forensic bust shows a man in his 30s or early 40s with deep set eyes and high cheekbones. He has dark hair and dark eyes. He could reasonably fit into any of the ancestry categories listed in the file. In some cases we've covered a victim, and we can't say for sure that the Twiggs County John Doe is a victim, although homicide seems most likely, is embalmed and buried or cremated after examination. In cases where few samples are taken, that has led to difficulty using newer technology, especially DNA technology, to help resolve a case. At the GBI's main labs though, The decedent's remains would be kept intact for future examination and testing, and both would come not just once, but several times over the years. First, an entry into NamUs, then a forensic re-examination, and most recently, samples taken for isotopic testing, not something that was possible in 2003. Back to that year and the original exam, Dr. Snow also recorded details on everything that Twiggs County John Doe was wearing. There were nylon track pants, which were Gat Jeans brand and men's size 30, with a lot and laundry tags still intact. There was the lug shoe, size 8, most likely belonging to the decedent, and found near the body. And there was an Odo brand collarless pullover shirt, dark in color, Asak McDaniel at the Region 13 office reached out to Gat Jeans and Odo Clothing via their websites. He was interested in following the trail of each garment, from designer all the way to the storefront, to see if a purchase could be traced to a specific store, or maybe even a particular person. His most promising lead came from the makers of the pants, Gat Jeans. Based on the specific lot numbers on the garment tags, they were able to identify the pants as a style no longer in production. And, more specifically, a style sold only in one chain store in the United States. A store called Mr. Rags. There were no Mr. Rags locations in Georgia in 2003. In fact, the closest store was in Pembroke Pines, Florida, nearly 600 miles south of Twiggs County. That meant that the search would certainly expand over state lines. When we spoke with Special Agent Weathersby in February of 2021, we asked him to discuss how this kind of research can help in an investigation. As outsiders, we tend to only concentrate on things like DNA or dental matches. But how often have you utilized other matching methods over the years? Other
1: methods, especially involving clothing, has helped numerous times. And one of the reasons why is it's usually a lot faster than waiting on a DNA result. If you can see a laundry mark or a laundry tag in someone's clothing, you can get that information by making a phone call and maybe even track down to, if not a particular store, sometimes even a particular customer. If you can do that, that's a lot quicker than waiting six, seven, eight weeks for DNA to come back. So we've used it probably, in my career, 20-some-odd years, uh, at least 10
0: times. Has it ever solved a case for you?
1: Well, in the fact that it gave us the identity of our victim, and that led to who killed them, yes, it solved it. The Identification is the most important step to finding who killed your victim. So, yes, it's led to it. Not normally directly, like it doesn't absolutely tell you who did it from the start, but once you know who it is, you know who to ask about where was this person at, when did they go missing, who were they with. Those questions led up to finding the killer.
0: The Twiggs County John Doe's case file is hundreds of pages long, and much of that work is devoted to the possible identity matches for the decedent. Florida was a good lead, but not the only one. And there are several possible missing persons reports that bear mentioning here. Most of the men who are identified in the files were either located or ruled out right away. But a few leads went further than that. Of those men, a number of the cases are still open today. The first is Michael Wayne Allen, a 44-year-old white male from Brooksville, Florida. He disappeared on Halloween night, 1997 nearly five years before the Twiggs County John Doe was discovered. With the Twiggs County John Doe's PMI, that's post-mortem interval, being about two years, that might put Allen's disappearance a few years too early to match the case. But PMI is not exact. Per the Tampa Bay Times, Allen had been on his way to Tampa to pick up his seven-year-old from his ex-wife's house. They'd planned to go trick-or-treating. When he didn't arrive, friends and family were immediately concerned. They told the Tribune that Allen would never have missed Halloween with his son. There had been custody disputes and tension in the divorce, but that was several years in the past. Allen's mother, who was interviewed for the article, didn't think that had any relation to his disappearance. And no one thought that Allen would just take off either, especially not with a small child in Tampa, and a 19-year-old son from a previous marriage living up in Georgia. The Tribune quoted a friend of Alan's who described him as, quote, laid back, responsible, a good dad. Per the Tribune, Alan had physical custody of his son. He was also engaged and worked full-time at a local Dodge dealership. A little less than a month after Alan's disappearance, his car was found in a mall parking lot on Tarpon Avenue in Tarpon Springs. That's a town about an hour south of Brooksville on the way to Tampa. Per the Tribune, bloodstains were found in the vehicle. And that discovery came just 10 days after a scheduled November 17th court hearing. According to the Tribune, Allen had, quote, sued his ex-wife for child support. Another Tampa Tribune article, which was released to mark the two-year anniversary of his disappearance in 1999, added one new detail. Allen's clothes were found, quote, meticulously folded and left in his car. Per the police, quote, the investigation had stalled. The GBI became aware of Allen's case after a tip came in, suggesting he might be compared to the Twiggs County John Doe. Outside of his older son living in Georgia, there doesn't seem to be a strong reason why Allen would be in the state, especially with his car so much farther south, halfway to Tampa. Also, Allen was reportedly six feet tall and 180 pounds, which made him much larger than estimates for the Twiggs County John Doe. Based on pant size, it's reasonable to assume the Twiggs County John Doe weighed somewhere between 130 and 150 pounds. If you'll recall, a height estimate would have put him at or under five foot eight. Allen seemed an unlikely match. Then again, estimates are only that estimates, and they can be off by a long shot. That was the case for Michael Allen. He was eventually found and identified in Tampa in 2012. Per the Charlie Project, his skeletonized remains had been discovered underneath a bridge some years earlier. However, a forensic anthropologist's estimation had classified the remains as those of a black male. According to the Tribune, the initial forensic estimations had also placed that decedent at five foot eight, not six feet, and at 50 years of age. So, Allen's case wasn't compared. But DNA testing finally brought the match, and according to the Florida Department of Law Enforcement, his death was ruled a homicide. We've been unable to find any further updates on the case, not past 2012. We're not even sure if it's still open. A second possible lead developed differently through one of the earliest missing persons websites. Per the case file, in 2003, ASAC McDaniel came across a particular photo on the website missing persons throughout the world. It was a site that was something like a first-generation Charlie project, but much less searchable or user-friendly. On the site, He saw a photo of a missing man, Louis Joseph Amanzio, who seemed to bear a strong similarity to Marla Lawson's forensic reconstruction. Amanzio, a real estate agent in Miami, disappeared on August 4, 2000. He's listed as a white male, 27 years old, 5'8", and about 180 pounds. There's almost no trace of Amanzio online. Not in the Florida databases for missing persons or homicides or any updates in the news. There's no NamUs entry. The only source of information is his Charlie Project page, which hasn't been updated since 2004. And the website, missing persons throughout the world, no longer exists. According to the case file, it seems that he was ruled out on the Twiggs County John Doe case based on his dental records. Again, there are no updates. The most complex missing persons comparison came when the GBI was contacted by a bail agent out of Florida who was looking for a man named Felicito Roblero Morales. Roblero was alleged to be a narcotics smuggler who worked across the Southeast. He testified in a murder trial just a few years earlier, and either of these factors might have contributed to his disappearance. Roblero had connections to both Florida and Georgia. The bail agent had heard rumors that Roblero had been killed and buried in Georgia. He thought that Roblero might be a match for the Twiggs County John Doe. Roblero was described as a Latino male, his stature considerably smaller than the estimations for the Twiggs County John Doe, 5'2 and about 120 pounds. Still, the bail agent arranged to have a picture sent to the GBI office. And there was a strong similarity between Roblero and Marla Lawson's reconstruction of the Twiggs County John Doe. Felicito Roblero, who was originally from Guatemala, had filed for political asylum in the United States in 1999. The status of that case at the time of his disappearance is unclear. His ex-wife was able to verify his clothing sizes, size 7 or 8 in men's shoes and pant size 30 waist. And there was familial DNA available to use as a comparison with the Twiggs County John Doe. But there was also a problem. The lab indicated that testing was limited and only certain family members, a mother or a brother or a sister, could be a strong enough comparison to match or rule out Roblero. Asac McDaniel traveled to Tampa in search of a brother of Felicito Roblero. Another GBI office near his former residence ran ads in the local paper, quote, in hopes of finding Roblero's sister or brother so they may come forward to give blood so the remains can be compared to Roblero's DNA. That was if the GBI could get a sample, they'd had to send material to the FBI lab at Quantico to attempt the extraction. Tennessee authorities were eventually able to acquire a sample from a close enough relative of Roblero's. It seems that sometime in 2005, he was ruled out by DNA as a match for the Twiggs County John Doe. We've been unable to find any missing persons information on Felicito Roblero. According to the bail agent who first suggested the match, Roblero's father lived in Mexico City and had brothers and sisters residing in the United States. But if he's been found or if his body's been recovered, it's never been reported. By 2005, the Twiggs County John Doe's DNA was on file with the FBI, and it would be run again against a missing trucker named Jimmy Rogers. According to the case file, Rogers had hauled a load of pine straw to Alabama and then called his daughter to say he was on his way back. That was April 30th or May 1st of 2003, about five months before the Twiggs County John Doe was discovered. Jimmy Rogers' truck was found in Twiggs County just four days after his disappearance, creating, perhaps, a stronger connection than in any of the other possible cases. But his mother was able to give a DNA sample, and the FBI lab at Quantico ruled her out as a possible relative of the Twigs County John Doe. Jimmy Rogers is still listed as missing today. The Charlie Project describes him as a white male, 44 years old at the time of his disappearance, five between 5'8 and 5'11, with sandy blonde hair and green eyes. If you have any information in Jimmy Rogers' case, you can reach the Lawrence County Sheriff, that's his home area, at 478-272-1522. There's another comparison that we didn't see in the file, but we wondered about, especially after seeing Marla Lawson's second facial reconstruction, which she made in 2006. This came after another anthropologist arrived at the GBI offices, likely on a grant or fellowship, though it's not stated specifically, and offered a second opinion on the Twiggs County John Doe's ancestry. So, to talk about that comparison, we need a little more on forensic anthropology and why ancestry estimation can never be an exact science. Forensic anthropology is a science that changes, just like any other. It refines, redefines, rethinks. The human body doesn't change, but our understanding of it does. Standards change. Larger and better population comparisons are made. Scientists learn more, see blind spots, reassess. It's why it's so important to have cold cases reexamined, especially in light of new scientific understanding that doesn't begin or end with DNA or new technology. As we've mentioned, in the years following Dr. Snow's examination, another forensic anthropologist offered an opinion on the Twiggs County John Doe. According to the GBI's files, the second anthropologist felt the ancestry estimation should be updated, that the Twiggs County John Doe was likely biracial of black and white ancestry. That second opinion led to a second forensic bust in the case. That's the art that you'll see on the GBI's website, and on NamUs, and the Doe Network. We spoke with Dr. Amy Michael, a lecturer at the University of New Hampshire, and a biological anthropologist who's appeared on our show before. She's our resident expert in all things forensic anthropology. We asked her to talk to us about how and why ancestry estimations change, and how the field currently views ancestry estimation in Doe cases. Could you give us a current feel for the anthropological view of determination of ancestry and any debates in the field?
2: So ancestry is probably the hottest topic in our field right now. Um, Anthropologists have long concerned themselves with ancestry or what the general public calls race for decades. Uh, And we long ago joined other biological scientists in describing how race doesn't exist That is at least that it's not a biologically valid concept and doesn't meaningfully describe people. But I would say that the past year, the summer of 2020 and the George Floyd protests definitely reignited the debate in our field. At the last American Academy of Forensic Sciences meetings, there was a really vigorous debate on ancestry in the anthropology section. And clearly the conversation needs to happen amongst anthropologists because we're the ones responsible for translating that biological information from the skeleton. And then we necessarily have to categorize that information for police who want to know if a decedent is white, black, Asian, et cetera. Some anthropologists, an increasing number, I would say, have advocated for even up to the disuse of ancestry estimation in case reports, but many others still use metric and non-metric methods to group unknown does in an effort to estimate ancestry. Um, This is how we've been trained. This is how I was trained in graduate school. But I would say that Also, recently, there are an increasing number of people who are tackling issues of mixed-race ancestry and debating whether mixed-race is even a meaningful category or term as well. Um, And that's certainly potentially the case with the doe that we're talking about today. And so the ancestry estimation question and the debate around it is definitely going to continue in our field for quite some time.
0: Our case took place in the early 2000s. How were anthropologists then operating?
2: So, in the early 2000s, you know, we're going on 20 plus years almost um, of uh, new and updated methodologies. In the early 2000s, um, people were still using basically three main categories uh, white, black, and Native slash Asian. So, this is how I was trained in graduate school using these methods um, that, that grouped into these three categories. But clearly, those categories are insufficient to describe all those. Um, It doesn't even get us close here in the States uh, for a lot of decedents. So this area of the field has changed significantly since the early 2000s, both in terms of people accessing larger, more diverse data sets. And by data sets, I mean skeletal collections. um, And using those data sets to develop methods, to understand human variation, um, to understand what that variation looks like in the skeleton. But we also see that people are expanding their ideas about what it really means when we tell law enforcement that an individual is Black or Native or Hispanic or some other group. Um, so the change is kind of twofold. It's first in the in the um, amount of data that's available and the methods that can be refined. And then secondly, um, kind of the cultural shift towards being, uh, having a more expansive idea um, of what those descriptive categories mean.
0: So... Kind of building on what you just said, we will often see decedents, especially in older cases, who are listed as, quote, possibly white or Hispanic, or, quote, white slash Hispanic, or, quote, white slash Hispanic slash Native American. What are some of the factors that may have led either a medical examiner or an anthropologist to make these determinations?
2: I'm totally unsurprised by um, when I see those categorizations too, with the you know slashes between um, humans exists on a spectrum, and clearly we can see this. You know, in living people, we we clearly exhibit extraordinary phenotypic variability, right, or, or the way that we look. Um, we also exhibit extraordinary genotypic variability or our genetic makeup. So the skeleton is not a perfect measure of anything. It's not a perfect measure of sex or age or stature. Um, It's definitely not a perfect measure of ancestry. And the traits that we see in the skeleton might not be one-to-one correlations with um, the way uh, that we classify race um, with our eyes as we look at one another. Um, And that's usually by things like skin color and eye shape, lip shape, nose shape, things like this, of course. So if an individual exhibits multiple traits crossing multiple categories, we think of this in biology as discordance. Discordance is the inability for all expressed traits to be placed in one quote-unquote racial group. So this is sort of a simple description or explanation, but the idea of discordance is why racial groups are not biologically meaningful, and they don't meaningfully describe human variation.
0: In 2003, when an anthropologist would look at a decedent's remains to try and determine possible ancestry so that an identification could be made or a profile developed, what are some of the major areas that they would measure or examine? Around this time, anthropologists would have been using standardized
2: methods that would have been taught to all graduate students. And those methods were developed on skeletal populations likely several decades earlier. Um, So those skeletal populations are, of course, um, kind of constrained by exactly what they are, right? Um, So those might be indigent populations or anatomical populations, um, or just whoever winds up in a skeletal collection several decades before that. Um, So a lot of those methods developed on those collections are still used today, but they've been expanded or they've been built upon by by subsequent researchers. And what we know, of course, is that adding more data about different ancestry groups is going to be key to understanding variation both within those groups and between groups. Um, But we might not be able to meaningfully see all of that variation in the skeleton. So the anthropologists would have examined likely the skull and maybe several post-cranial elements, but we definitely know that the skull, and I'm I'm including the teeth in that, um, contain much of the variation used when we describe different ancestry groups. So um, they would have been looking at things like the shape of the nose or the nasal opening, the shape of the eye orbits, the flaring of the cheekbones, all of these and more could be described and they could be scored and they could be measured. Um, potentially. Uh, the anthropologist might have taken measurements of the different distances between various points on the skull. We call this cranial metrics. And then when you take kind of the sum of these things, whether you're looking at uh, metrics or measurements or non-metric data, which is just kind of like shape and size, um, we would compare all these data to individuals of known ancestry or at least ancestry that law enforcement identified them as or that they self-identified as. And um, And comparing these data to known groups is what we do to figure out how to best describe the unknown person. So this is what I would assume would have been happening.
0: I know you haven't seen the specific bone measurements or photos of the victim's remains in this case. But based on your knowledge of the field and what you know about anthropology in 2003, 2004, 2005, what kind of factors would have led to someone revising that original ancestry estimation? So, th- it's not uncommon to revise
2: a case report or to take another look at methods. Um, biological profiles get revised all the time when there are improved methods or when potentially more data sets become available. Uh, ancestry estimation, like all skeletal analysis done by anthropologists, can also be totally subjective. Um, it's more likely that uh, the estimation will be more accurate when done by an expert, and I don't mean just an anthropologist, I mean an anthropologist who's specifically an expert in ancestry. So somebody who has looked at thousands of skulls and studied really closely the patterns expressed in small portions of the midface is going to simply be better at estimating ancestry than somebody like I am. Uh, This is not my expressed research area. So ancestor estimation is a really well studied research area and there are refined and improved methods published yearly and presented on yearly at the academic conferences. So, you know, it's my hope of course that many that many uh, departments would choose to pursue updated or improved methods, especially in the case of ancestor estimation when we know this is often so critical to resolving an identity.
0: So it might not be unusual for um, a case to be revised more than once or even twice. Correct. It was that second bust Marla Lawson made when another anthropologist offered an updated ancestry opinion that brought us to this case. The second forensic bust reflects that new information but is also informed by Marla's previous work on the case, measurements and facial reconstruction and the result looks somewhat similar to another missing Georgia man, Christopher Tompkins. As Dr. Michael has told us before, forensic reconstructions are best thought of as approximations, an idea versus a reality. And based on that, it seemed as though Chris Tompkins might fall within the description of the Twiggs County John Doe. We'd been looking into Tompkins' case for some time before this, he disappeared in Harris County, Georgia, on January 25th, 2002. That's about two hours west of Twiggs County. Tompkins, who was 20 at the time, was working as a surveyor. He'd been with a crew working in a wooded area near two rural main roads. Tompkins, who's described by NamUs as a, quote, black male, 5 foot 7 inches, and 124 pounds, was last seen between 1 and 1.30 p.m. that winter afternoon. Per the Ledger Inquirer, he was wearing, quote, a black shirt, a blue and gray plaid jacket with a gray hood, and navy blue Dickies work pants. At some point, Tompkins' employer realized he was missing. According to the Ledger Inquirer, his coworkers told their employer that they'd seen Tompkins walking up the road some distance ahead of them. No one was sure where he'd gone, just that he was gone. Like so many other families we've covered, Christopher Tompkins' loved ones reported that they were told to wait 24 hours before filing a missing persons report. But, per the ledger, they weren't willing to do that. They formed their own search party that same day and began to search the rural land. And it didn't take them long to make a discovery. Christopher Tompkins' mother told the ledger inquirer, quote, what we found was puzzling, and did not make sense in light of what Christopher's coworkers told authorities. We found one of his boots, his work tools, a blue fiber from his pants, and 12 cents on the ground near the items. The statements by his employer and coworkers indicated that they believed Christopher just walked off the job site without telling anyone. His other boot was found several months later, miles from the original boot, on some property off I-85. It was found by the owner of the property, end quote. She also pointed out that it would have been difficult for him to walk off with a single boot. Where would he have gone and why? A second Ledger Inquirer article, this one from 2008, stated that, quote, his employer said in the days preceding his disappearance, Christopher had been, quote, acting strangely but gave no specifics, end quote. That didn't track with the friends and family interviewed by local papers. They didn't believe that he displayed any odd behavior or had any reason to just disappear one day. And his mother would go on to question why it was three hours before the survey crew informed her of his disappearance. Per the Inquirer, Christopher Tompkins lived at home. A call to his mother would have been natural. She told the paper in 2008, quote, I am not a citizen with great influence. I am simply a grieving mother who wants to keep this case in the public light and hopes that one day someone will come forward with some information in what happened to my son. She added that she did not believe that Christopher Tompkins was still alive. Tompkins' case has attracted attention with some of the same web sleuths who follow missing persons reports in national parks and some who attribute those disappearances to supernatural or even cryptozoological origins. Based on his mother's statements, it's possible she thinks that the suspects lie somewhere closer to home. However, we've not seen any motives for his disappearance discussed in the press. Christopher Tompkins is not mentioned in the Twiggs County file, but that may be because the case records were kept with the Harris County authorities. Though there is no public NamUs exclusion listed either, Tompkins has indeed been compared to the Twiggs County John Doe. Special Agent Lee Weathersby was able to verify that when we spoke. We know that Chris Tompkins, who disappeared in Harris County in 2002, has been ruled out in this case. Do you know how he was excluded as a match for the Twiggs County John Doe?
1: Uh, Chris Tompkins' mother submitted a sample of DNA and that was presented to the FBI lab in Quantico, Virginia, who ruled her out as being the mother of my victim.
0: Christopher Tompkins is still missing. If you have any information in his case, please call the Harris County Sheriff's Office at 706 628 4211. Many of the leads in the Twiggs County John Doe case were a result of tips from the public that came in from news coverage and the GBI circulating ads, and TV media covering the case over several counties. We know that law enforcement compares unidentified persons with open missing persons cases too, but when we spoke to Agent Weathersby, he made an important, if simple, point. That process is necessarily limited by the number of cases that are filed. How can the public help in the identification of decedents like the Twiggs County John Doe?
1: One thing I think that the general population can do, if you know of anyone who is, has an estranged family member, who has a homeless person in their family, or someone who's on drugs or on the street, or just not in contact with the family anymore, have them list them as missing. We don't have a abundance of people listed as missing. We have an abundance of people found dead, and we don't know who they are. So the biggest thing you can do is make sure that everyone who has a family member, even if they don't want to have contact with them, puts those people, lists those people as missing because we don't know who we're looking at when we find them. I think for everyone we find or everyone we check, they may be three or four or in this case 20 people we've checked, legitimate people missing who could have been this guy who weren't, was it? But I bet you there's a 1,000 that didn't list their family member that this guy could be. And that's what scares me, is the right people just haven't said, oh, by the way, my brother's missing. If any of this gets one family to give their— uh, to list their family member as missing and we find them, every bit of it was worth it. Because I guarantee you, for every family out there looking for their loved one or just wondering about their loved one, not really even looking, there's some investigator trying to desperately to identify that victim.
0: And that's where we're headed next episode. What can be done to identify a victim when the leads run out? How science can fill the gaps? And what is being pursued now, in the present, to identify the Twiggs County John Doe? Because, even though the tips have slowed down, his case file has stayed up to date, year after year, as science has progressed. And now, there is new hope of finding his identity. If you have any information regarding the identity of the Twiggs County John Doe, please call the GBI Region 13 office at 478-987-4545 or the Twiggs County Sheriff at 478-945-3357. You can see pictures of both facial reconstructions on our social media and our website. Thank you for listening. The Fall Line is a fully independent show, and we appreciate listener support. If you try out the products we mention, please use our sponsor codes. It really helps. And if you'd like to support the show and the stories we cover, join us over on Patreon. We're raising Patreon funds to continue to fund the Millbrook Twins Billboard, begin a therapy fund for families who've been on the show, and many other projects. You can read a public post about those goals on our Patreon page. On Patreon, you can get early-release, ad-free versions of our regular episodes for only $5 a month. And for as little as $1 a month, you can access blogs and our new live streams. The Fall Line is written, hosted, and researched by Laura Norton, with additional research by Brian Waters, Kim Fritz, and Jessica Ann. Family and law enforcement interviews by Brooke Hargrove. Produced and engineered by Maura Curry. Content advisors are Brandy C. Williams, Liv Fallon, and Vic Kennedy. And, as always, our most special thanks to Angie Dodd. Currently, our monthly donation is going to the Black and Missing Foundation.